From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. We are capturing pandemic life in Colorado. Today, a COVID-era career change. Erin Courtney was a longtime bartender, but ready for something new. So she went back to school, all while raising a toddler and doing an internship and holding on to her bar job. Then the pandemic hit. And lo and behold, my moneymaker, which was the bartending gig, no longer existed. Then, at a time of tension, anger, even ugliness, History Colorado teams up with the Smithsonian to create a place for reflection and dialogue. The new show is called American Democracy. And Purplish is back with voter voices from across the state. Plus, a new festival celebrates all the diversity of Aurora's artists. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And Aaron, I'll ask you a kind of basic question, which is, how has COVID-19 and the economic fallout, how has it changed your life? Oh, it hasn't changed anything. I'm kidding. Um, it's changed just about every aspect of it. This is Aaron Courtney of Denver, who for the last 20 years was a bartender. Then the pandemic hit. And lo and behold, my moneymaker, which was the bartending gig, no longer existed. We are documenting pandemic life in Colorado, and Aaron Courtney's story shows that while some lives have been put on hold, others have accelerated. Courtney spent her whole career in the service industry. I entered the restaurant business when I went to college the first time around. I'm, I'm 39 today. So Happy birthday. I, Oh, thank you. So I was about 20 years ago, you know, was going to college and had this lucrative, you know, job at a restaurant. And uh, although it was supposed to be something I did to pay my way through college, it ended up being what I did for 20 years. So it was something I never really wanted to do for the rest of my life. I always said I wasn't going to be a 40 year old bartender. And that's not to say anything bad about bartending. I did it for 20 years. I loved it. It's just not how I wanted to do the rest of it for my family. Were you a good bartender? Uh, Yeah, I was a good bartender. I made good money, cash in hand at the end of every night, but it was time to move on. And so about a year before COVID hit, Courtney enrolled in a degree program at Emily Griffith Technical College in GIS, Geographic Information Systems. A friend thought she'd enjoy that field. The most commonly used GIS that I refer to, and it's one of the most basic because it is literally just geographic data, is Google Maps. So everybody uses it every day. It is a data set about geographic information. So somewhere on the planet. And if you think about it, every data set in the world, regardless of what it's about, has some geographic information because it happens somewhere in the world. You sound like you really love it. I love it. (laughs) I do. It's great. Uh, My friend, the data scientist, couldn't have been more spot on for finding a path for me. That path was supposed to overlap more with the bartending, though, because it's where her family's health insurance was coming from. She has a husband who's disabled and a toddler. The bartending and some scholarship money were paying for her degree program and allowing her to do a GIS internship with Aurora Water. I mean, I'm not going to say it was easy. You know, I was working two jobs when I was working at the bar and internships. I was working about 45 or 50 hours a week and going to school full time. And I had a one year old and it was difficult and it was worth it because, you know, I earned it. And I'm I'm now 
doing something good for society and I've improved my, the life of my family. You know, it took a great support system and I'm super thankful for that as well. But it also took me finally believing in myself. As we heard, the pandemic hit and that bartending gig, her safety net, vanished. So Erin Courtney had to get creative. Could she condense her paid internship, get more of that experience and money up front, and metaphorically jump from one side of the drawbridge to the other, even as it was lifting? The answer to her relief was yes. She has since finished the degree and landed a year-long contract with Aurora Water. Her latest project there? We made a virtual water tour for the state legislators, talking about the source of supply for all of Aurora Water. So it goes to all the reservoirs up in the mountains and follows all of the water. It's, It's something that they used to do in person. You know, they would take them out on a water tour and say, this is where all of our our source of water comes from. And this is why it's important to have these areas protected and all of that. But since pandemic, that's not really something they can do. You know, they can't get into a car with 12 other people or a van with 12 other people and drive up to the mountains. Courtney says it helps that her husband is at home, that her parents are close by and can take care of her kiddo. And I know that for a lot of people, this is the most difficult time they've ever had in their life. And I wouldn't say I have like survivor's guilt associated with it, but I do feel like this changed my life. And, you know, I feel like it's also not too late for other people. I know that it's scary uh, for a lot of people right now that, you know, are having a hard time even getting any of their bills paid or food in their mouths. And so my story is a little different (laughs) than your typical pandemic because I'm coming out with, you know, a new career and a new life. And I know how odd that is. Aaron Courtney of Denver, just one of the Coloradans we're profiling to see how the pandemic is changing lives. If you have a story to share, especially about a COVID career change, tweet me at CPR Warner and email us. That's another option. Colorado Matters at CPR.org. That's Colorado Matters at CPR.org. Even before this summer's unrest, History Colorado was thinking about what constructive dialogue sounds like, which is why the museum teamed up with the Smithsonian's traveling show American Democracy, A Great Leap of Faith. It opens to the general public tomorrow, and it's got some local flavor. The third floor of the exhibit is called Women Behaving Badly, and it features the work of artist Adri Norris. She created the Black Lives Matter street mural in front of Denver City and County Building. Adri, welcome back to our program. Thank you very much for having me. And on the phone is History Colorado's chief creative officer, Jason Hansen. Hello again, Jason. Hello, Ryan. It's so nice to talk with you again. Uh, As I said, Jason, y'all were discussing democracy and dialogue before the racial unrest, before the pandemic hit. But how did the protests over George Floyd's death help shape your approach? Well, that's that's right. We started this conversation with the Smithsonian uh, more than three years ago. Uh, We looked at the calendar. Uh, we said we'd love to bring this exhibit to Denver uh, around the next presidential election. Mm. And we were moving ahead. And then uh, 
a couple of different things changed our world, including the protests. And as we uh, watch those develop, uh, you know, this exhibit is is about how we got to now. Really, all of our work is about how we got to now. And uh, we knew we had to capture history in the making and reflect it in this exhibit. Uh, so we we started to brainstorm. The team here is uh, really creative, and we uh, layered pieces into this exhibition. So it's really it's not just an exhibition; it's a it's a full initiative. Uh, so we we created uh, uh, a curated art show throughout the museum. We've got a new speaker series uh, that is uh, really designed to engage with current events and, and topics of the moment. Uh, and uh, we provide space for people to uh, really engage with the moment on their own or with their, their friends and family and loved ones, those who they are at the museum with. You're at the museum now. Uh, I know that it, the show is opening to members today. Can you, I don't know, paint a, a scene, a picture of us, uh, for us rather, um, of like something you're really excited about that's part of this democracy exhibition? That's right. Yeah, we are putting the last touches on right now. Uh, and one thing that I'm excited about is uh, uh, right as people come into our building, if, if you're familiar with the History Colorado Center, you know, we have a beautiful uh, large atrium and we have turned that into something we're calling Unity Square. It's full of uh, art and experiences, uh, things that people can do safely without having to worry uh, that they are, uh, you know, putting themselves or their health at risk, but that will help them think through some of the topics. So right now, uh, for instance, people will be great, greeted by uh, an enormous sculpture mm. uh, called We the People. Um, it's by uh, Rianne Corain, who is based right here in Denver. Um, what this is, it's a, a just enormous uh, set of letters, uh, We the People, stacked on top of each other, uh, reaching up well above all of our heads to the second floor. Um, and we're inviting people to cast their hands in plaster. We've got a, a way you can do that uh, safely without coming uh, into contact with, with anyone else or reusing anything. And we add those hands uh, to the sculpture so that as time goes by with this exhibition, uh, this, the letters uh, become filled with uh, the people's hands. I mean, the, the metaphor becomes real and it resolves into this sort of pointillistic collage of mm. uh, the people. Adri, as I said, your contribution is in an art exhibit called Women Behaving Badly. Uh, in your paintings, you highlight heroic women whose place in history was forgotten or intentionally downplayed or buried. I'd love to hear an untold story. Is there one you'd share with us? Yeah. So um, one of the stories that I, I really love is the story of Dolores Huerta, um, so she's not a Colorado local, but she has passed through here a number of times. Uh, she helped to found the um, United Farm Workers Association with Cesar Chavez, but we only really know his name in association with that group. Um, but she was very much there at the beginning and continues to fight for democracy, for rights. She is spearheading the census right now, mm. um, you know, things of that nature. But unfortunately, when Cesar Chavez passed, um, there was a move to actively erase her from the story. Um, and she's, you know, she's a powerhouse of a woman. What was it like to kind of capture her image as an artist? 
It was very interesting because, you know, um, I did her painting at the beginning of my series in 2016. So it was, you know, before I'd really, it's interesting, I've actually seen her in public, in person, two times now. Um, um, but so she, she the, didn't sit for this, necessarily. She did not sit for this, no. Uh, in fact, I, I haven't had anyone sit for me just yet. It's a work in progress. Um, you know, many of the people that I've painted are no longer with us. Uh, and so... I just kind of look for images online and, and do my best to to learn about these people and, and tell their story. And maybe go back to those uh, fleeting occasions when you've actually seen her and maybe try to capture that energy. Right, exactly. And so, um, but, you know, the, in reading her story, I got this sense of this sort of, um, this power, this uh, strength to her. And so in searching for imagery, I really did my best to, you know, portray that because, you know, often enough when people post their own pictures, it's a smiling one or, you know, something of that nature. But this was like a a heroic shot, something shot Mm. from slightly below where she looked particularly regal. Oh, I love that word regal. There are 28 women who behaved badly, kind of trading cards blown up like posters, which you designed through the Women's Commission. And one features Polly Baca. We gave her a ring. I behaved badly, and I'm proud of it. I was the first woman to serve in leadership as chair of the Democratic Caucus in both the Colorado House and Colorado Senate. And I was the first woman of color to be elected to the Colorado State Senate in 1978. Also, I was the first woman of color to co-chair two National Democratic Presidential Conventions in 1980 and 1984. And in 1968, I served as National Deputy Director of Senator Robert Kennedy's campaign for president and was present when he was assassinated. Uh, Edra, you noticed when you were researching women's stories that there's kind of a disparity between black women and Latinas and Asians. Can you help us understand that? Yes. So um, I actually got a fellowship through History Colorado and the Women's History Museum to create a piece. um, It was originally going to be a coloring book um, about women of color in the suffrage movement. So that period between 1848 and 1920. Um, However, when I began my research, I realized that I was able to find tons of African-American women's. There were colored women's clubs all around the country uh, that were involved in the suffrage movement. But I was really only able to find one Latin American woman, one Native American woman, one Asian American woman who were involved in the movement at the time. And the thing I came to discover was that the reason that there were so few is that their concerns were so incredibly different. Um, Native Americans, uh, as an entire group, didn't have a right to to citizenship. They weren't citizens until 1924. Um, Latin American women, uh, if you were Mexican, you had been um, made a citizen by default due to the uh, Mexican-American War, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. Uh, and so there was a lot of battles over land rights and things of that nature. And so suffrage wasn't really a thing. There was also a cultural difference in who had what rights already. And then um, for Asian women, um, you know, the Chinese Exclusion Act was very much effect up until about 1938 and uh, similar restrictions for the Japanese. And so, again, fighting for the right to vote was not something you were interested in doing if you didn't even have citizenship. I so appreciate this perspective because I think we think of women's suffrage as one thing, but there were many, many different stories going on, many different timelines as to who got to vote when. Uh, Jason, I want to mention that 
uh, in terms of history, Colorado, the toppled Union soldier statue, which used to be displayed on a pedestal mm-hmm. at the west steps of the state capitol, is going to have a, a new home with you. Uh, logistics, I understand, are still being figured out. But I'm curious, if it comes to you with the graffiti on it, are you going to clean it up? Uh, short answer, no. No. Um, I understand that there was some damage to the sculpture as well as some uh, graffiti on it. And uh, uh, at museums, we conserve the artifacts in our care, but we don't restore them. We don't uh, try to put them back like new because uh, the story really is how it came to us. And uh, in this case, I think the story of that monument is uh, very much uh, that it was toppled. Mm. Um, And so uh, how it comes to us is how we will uh, present it and share it uh, with everybody else. There are reports that a statue of an American Indian mother with an empty crib may replace the statue near the Capitol. Is, Is that your understanding? Well, I understand that the Capitol Building Advisory Committee is is considering their options, uh, including that. And I think all I can say is that History Colorado is uh, always ready to to support uh, where we can. Adri, we have about 30 seconds. I, I just would love a quick reflection from you because the Black Lives Matter street art in front of the Denver City County Building starting to fade now. What did that experience mean to you just briefly? You know, it was really fascinating to work on a project that was so big. I mean, they shut down the city for about a day and a half. Um, So, you know, coming in overnight, putting in the piece, um, the homeless encampment was there the night that we put things up. And so understanding how these people were living after dark uh, was fascinating. Um, And then the day of, you know, it was just a, a whirlwind of, you know, getting volunteers to come out. And there was just so much emotion around it. So it was it was phenomenal. I appreciate so much your time. You heard from Denver artist Adri Norris and History Colorado Chief Creative Officer Jason Hansen. The American Democracy Exhibit opens today for History Colorado members, opens to the public tomorrow. This week's snowy, wet weather has helped crews battling Colorado's wildfires, including the Pine Gulch Fire near Grand Junction, which is now the largest in state history. As they get closer to containment, the long work of erosion control and revegetation begins. But if the site of the state's previous record wildfire nearly two decades ago is any indication, what used to be forest may never be the same. Here's CPR's Michael Elizabeth Sackis. Marin Chambers stands surrounded by dead and fallen trees. She's in the middle of a large, high-severity burn patch from a fire in 2002, northwest of Colorado Springs. It's pretty unprecedented in the historical record, or at least what we understand wildfires to have done in the past in this kind of vegetation system. This scene left over from the Hayman Fire shows what's become a new normal for previously forested areas. These 18 square miles burned hot and fast in a single day. The Hayman Fire was driven by high winds, drought, and an unnaturally dense forest caused by fire suppression. Nearly 20 years later, there's something missing. Where are the new trees? The general pattern that we're seeing is that in areas that are really far from surviving trees, we're not seeing trees regenerate in large numbers. Some regeneration may be occurring, but certainly not enough to recreate a forest in the near term. Chambers is a research associate at Colorado State University. She and others have found that Colorado's forests are struggling to grow back some of the state's most iconic species, like ponderosa pine and Douglas fir, particularly in lower elevations. 
baby trees can't thrive in increased heat and drought brought on by climate change. We're standing out here, it's very hot and dry, even on a day that's not super hot for August. And so, you know, imagine being a ponderosa pine seed trying to grow out here. It's pretty, pretty intense environment. A lower intensity wildfire would have left behind some living trees scattered through the acres. Those trees would have dropped seeds and a forest could regenerate. High severity fires, which are more common these days, instead leave behind massive burn areas with almost nothing alive. The tree seeds can't reach much of that area. If there is forest regeneration, it happens in bands along the forest edge where surviving trees drop their seeds. But even that isn't always happening. What we're also seeing is that even where there is surviving forest, at lower elevations where it tends to be hotter and drier, we're not seeing the same kind of tree regeneration that we're seeing at higher elevations where it tends to be a little bit cooler and moister. Some trees, like aspen and oak, do better with regrowth after a fire. Camille Stevens-Ruman, a fire ecologist and assistant professor at Colorado State University, says lodgepole pine forests, like what's burning in the Cameron Peak Fire north of Rocky Mountain National Park, also have been found to recover better than other trees. Fire actually makes their cones open to drop seeds. But this Hayman Fire area might never reforest. If it does, it could take hundreds of years. Research has found that instead it could convert to grassland. Stevens Ruman said there can be lots of benefits to having gaps of grasslands between forested areas. But this massive burn scar doesn't show that. I think what we really are sad to see is when we have those huge expanses of that, where we're talking about tens of thousands of acres that have transitioned from forest to grasslands. One big concern with these ecosystem transitions is that trees sequester carbon. Fewer trees mean less stored carbon, which means more warming, which we just heard makes it harder for trees to regrow. Stevens-Ruman has studied a large range of burn forests across the West and has found a lot of areas are not able to support the same trees that have been there for over the last 100 or 200 years. We're really moving away from the suitable climate for tree regeneration to happen. But she wants to emphasize that Colorado is not losing all of its forests. She said it can sound dire, but many places do still have abundant tree regeneration. But they may be different species. I think part of what we all have to accept in this new and changing world is that these ecosystems are going to look different than the ones that maybe we have grown fond of in the past. Thomas Veblen, a professor at CU Boulder, has an idea what that future will look like. He's researched fire recovery for four decades. We should expect to have to walk to higher elevations if we want to walk under a forest canopy in the very near future. Veblen hopes that a hike through a burned area with no new trees is a wake-up call to the impacts of climate change, a problem, he says, we need to confront and resolve. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis, CPR News. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with a fresh episode of Purplish, bringing us voter voices from across the state. I'm Ryan Warner. Because of community support, Colorado Public Radio has scaled up its operations, delivering trustworthy information and music to audiences throughout the state on multiple easy-to-access platforms, with spaces for us all to share and embrace stories of hope, resilience, creativity, and joy. What CPR brings to your life is only possible because of financial support from the community. Many giving as Evergreen members, donating what feels affordable on a monthly basis. Add your support at CPR.org.
Ballots for the November election get mailed out in just about a month, and races beyond the presidency will shape the balance of power. Let's dip into a new episode of Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News. It's back now that the election cycle is kicking into high gear. Public affairs reporters Andrew Kenny, Benta Berkland, and Caitlin Kim have been talking to voters about the political divide and what's driving their decisions. So first, let's talk about what races we're really paying attention to in Colorado that we're going to be talking about from now through Election Day. What we know so far is that this probably won't be the state that decides the presidential election. But we could have a huge effect on the balance of the U.S. Senate. And it's another data point as we try to chart Colorado's political change. Will the state still be purple or purplish? Or is it headed solidly into the blue column? I think that's right. In the U.S. Senate race between Republican incumbent Cory Gardner and Democrat John Hickenlooper is the big contest everyone will be watching, especially nationally, because it could determine which party controls the U.S. Senate. I've talked to some voters who were pretty informed on the presidential race and policies, but they weren't Mm. following the Senate race too much yet. I think it's going to be somewhat difficult to avoid in the coming weeks because we're going to see a lot more ads and spending and flyers and already super PACs and dark money nonprofits. They've spent more than or close to $30 million targeting the senators. Both sides clearly see an opportunity there. Exactly. And it's not just the the Senate race. There's at least one and potentially one and a half interesting congressional races (laughs) as well. So one's only half interesting, huh? Eh, We'll get into that later. But yeah, we'll talk about CD3, which is the biggest district in the state, covers all of the western slope. In the south, it crosses the San Luis Valley and goes into Pueblo. And I mean, it is huge. You put a lot of miles on the rental car, right? Yes, far too many miles. (laughs) And there was an upset, as we all remember, this spring when incumbent Scott Tipton lost to his Republican challenger, his primary challenger, Lauren Boebert. So Mm. the seat is like an open seat um, with no incumbent. It's made people think that, you know, Democrats are thinking maybe this is the year that they can take the seat back. Republicans now are really on the, the defensive to make sure they keep the seat in their column. And I did hear from a lot of... Republicans and and even some unaffiliated voters that at least when it comes to this seat, it's not necessarily the Republican Democratic divide that's going to sort of help them decide they really want someone who's going to speak up for rural Colorado. Though, as you point out, it's very diverse in terms of what those parts of the state are like and what those communities are like from Pueblo and Grand Junction to some some places like Aspen and Durango and, and every place in between. So it makes it challenging to have that message that's going to resonate. Yeah. And then the the half race that I would like to mention mm. is the CD6 race, the 6th Congressional District, which mm. is currently um, represented by Democrat Jason Crow. If there is a district, I think, in Colorado that still is kind of purplish, I think this is the district. It mm. went from Mike Kaufman, a Republican who had, had, had represented this for several years, to Jason Crow, who defeated him in last cycle's blue wave. They will for sure want to hang on to that. So it could be interesting. Exactly. And and Crow is a moderate Democrat. Um, and, and I know that the Democratic caucus is also interested in making sure those moderates that won stay in office. And I think that's going to be part of the challenge. I think at one point, Republicans were targeting this as a seat that they could get back. I'm not sure that we'll still be in their pickup zone uh, this year, just given the amount of money Crow has in his war chest. So that should be an interesting race to watch as well. Yeah, that'll be one of the places where we see if that blue wave, you know, stays as far as it washed up the beach or if it kind of recedes a little bit in the future. Maybe it won't happen this cycle, but certainly somewhere to watch. 
Uh, I've been spending my time up and down the Front Range from Weld County down to Southern Arapahoe County, kind of looking for how those suburban voters are are splitting and indeed whether the blue wave has sustained power. You know, for, for one thing, I was down in Southern Arapahoe County looking at this area that was once solidly Republican and now looks to be pretty closely competitive. And what interested me about that area was that the way voters perform there won't just, you know, determine whether local state Republicans are able to hold on to their seats and hold on to some power, but also could have a big effect on whether a Cory Gardner can hold on on a statewide basis, because those are the folks who are those very rare things we call uh, we call swing voters. Not as many uh, these days. You know, we're seeing more polarization, but still certainly people are. It's not going to be a thing completely of the past. <laughs> That's right. Um, you know, driving around those neighborhoods, I found plenty of people with sharply partisan views who wanted nothing to do with the other guys. But I found some of those mythical split ticket voters who said they're still willing to, you know, a lot of them were pretty strongly anti-Trump, but they said they still wanted to consider Republicans down the ticket. So that could be important for, again, your Cory Gardner's and your Republican state lawmakers. Elections are obviously decided by voters, and we just wanted to make sure over the summer to really spend time talking to voters and being out and about in Colorado in different communities and different regions and talk to as many people as we can and hear what they're thinking, hear what's going on in their lives. We've all experienced so much change as a country in the last few months. And so as we kick off this new season of the show, um, let's talk a little bit about what we've learned and how it's shaped what we may be thinking about the election or yeah. just things that have really stuck with us. So, Andy, what's what's stuck with you as you've been out there? Yeah, I've, I've been thinking of this segment as how I spent my summer or a purplish <laughs> show and tell. The thing that has stuck with me, I've, I've heard this about once a day when I've been out in the field reporting. It's been the word civil war. And mm-hmm. I don't mean that in an alarmist way. It's not everybody saying this, but... I'll, I'll run into at least one voter who is just deeply concerned about the division in America to the point that they now have this idea of militant combat on their minds. And let me share with you this clip from a, a voter named Steve Turlecki in Arepo County. I was interviewing Steve just about how his district was changing and Democrats in the suburb. Let's listen to this clip and, and listen to how he suddenly pivots from that pretty standard discussion into something way darker. And yet they continue, you know, there's Californians that are moving out because they don't like what's going on in California, but uh, tend to uh, tend to move here and then vote the same way, thinking it's like won't happen again. Um, I don't know. The to me, the country is pushing very much to be uh, pre-Civil War 1850s type of uh, um, polarization. And I think if it keeps pushing this way and there's pushback from the middle class, there's going to be something more than a war of words. Hmm. My thing. I mean, that's why there's no guns on the shelves. There's no ammo on the shelves. And at one point in time, um, I don't know whether it be in my lifetime or in another decade or a riot down the street that'll strike it. But uh, the left is pushing much too hard, much too hard. I don't really care what they do. Just don't do it to me. Wow. Yeah, I've I have not heard anyone ever use that term when I've been interviewing folks. They haven't said specifically a civil war or talked 
this darkly. Mm. I've definitely heard Republicans and more conservative voters feel like Democrats are pushing too hard, but haven't heard this language. Yeah, I'll agree with what Benta said. That's what I've been hearing as well. I mean, there are Republicans who don't like the pace or the direction that they think that Democrats are going in. And they're trying to push back against that, but not not in those terms. Yeah. And again, let me put some context on that. Not a regular thing that we're hearing, but it's with far more frequency than I've ever encountered it, interviewing voters across many election cycles at this point. And it certainly shows you where people's heads are at. By the way, this is not people saying, I'm going to go to war myself. When I've asked voters about this, they they say, no, I'm probably, you know, if we lose this election, I'm just going to kind of sit here and be mad. But they're concerned that, you know, other people, one or two or three relationships removed from them are ready to do more. We're encountering this, by the way, on the right and on the left, I've heard it. I mean, definitely. I've talked to Democrats who were very, very nervous that if Trump loses and it's not by a wide margin or if it's in a state that's predominantly vote by mail, that people may not accept the results of that election. And also Democrats feel that he is dividing the country. He's not unifying anyone. He hasn't um, tried to bring people together because of COVID and Black Lives Matter and everything else and that, that he's stoking kind of the worst instincts. And so they're also nervous about yeah what could happen. And they blame people on the right and Trump supporters. Yeah. So this whole idea of a civil war is really a looking glass where you can see the worst fears of both sides. For the right, it's this really unfounded belief that a large number of leftists are coming to their suburbs and, and starting a riot to take things over. On on the left, it's this fear of an authoritarian takeover of the government. And to add to all this, you've got these small but intense confrontations that we're seeing in downtown areas where it's, you know, geared up armored protesters squaring off against counter protesters who are often armed and wearing camouflage. So you can certainly see where people are getting the images of this kind of extreme divide. I think this also goes into this issue that while, you know, Democrats and Republicans have these fears, there's also this large chunk in Colorado of unaffiliated that just want sort of normal, dare I say it, boring leadership. This is one of the things that I've heard uh, while I was traveling around uh, the Western Slope. Mm. They're just sick of all the partisanship. They're sick of all the sniping. And they just want some people that can lead. I spoke with Ryan Larkin. He was an unaffiliated voter in Carbondale. You know, I asked him, what's he looking for this fall? And this is what he had to say. Getting competent leadership? (laughs) You know, I'm not into conspiracy theories. You know, I want people that can work with each other and have a humane conversation. So basically, he thinks politics has gotten far too partisan. And Larkin and a number of the other, especially unaffiliated voters I spoke with, they said they're looking for for politicians with moderation. Yeah, it's funny. I actually talked to another voter in Arapahoe County as well. It was almost the exact same message. Like, you know, a voter kind of laughing and saying, like, I just want to get back to normal. Exactly. I heard that a lot. Benta, was that something that you heard? I think I heard that from people across the political spectrum, whether it's coronavirus and Republicans didn't want monuments destroyed and, you know, just life back to normal. I think there's different perspectives on why life isn't normal and Mm -hmm. who's really mostly to blame for that and how things have been handled or not. But I think people Mm -hmm. were just pretty exhausted and tired and people have a lot more stresses 
that they maybe didn't have a few months ago, depending upon their work situation and their family situation. I think in Colorado, we have seen a shift to Democrats um, in the last cycle at the state legislature, statewide races, congressional races. And this this election, you know, Republicans aren't necessarily expecting it to be a great cycle in Colorado. Mm. But some of them did feel a little bit disillusioned in the sense that they felt that they couldn't express their views and that it wasn't welcome. Hmm. And um, I talked to a woman, Amy Carlson. She has two children and she lives in Highlands Ranch, which is a conservative area. But Highlands Ranch is a place that Democrats are starting to compete in and spend some money in for the first time. And she plans to support President Trump again. She feels like she you know, doesn't like his personal style, but you know, she backs some of the things he's done, especially on trade and in China. And she's struggling with feeling like she has an outlet to talk about it. His interest is the United States as a whole, not special interest group. And I think the Democrats have a problem with that. And we are silenced. I mean, if you so if you talk into individuals, you'll see a lot of voices like mine. But we're silenced because of all these crazy, over the top, outspoken, far left people. That's something that I've encountered in two different ways. And one is like your classic conservative silent majority idea. I remember being in Weld County and trying to get people to talk. And one guy goes, sorry, dude, silent majority. <laughs> and I said, oh, well, I wish you wouldn't be so silent. Um, <laughs> right. But then also I've run into people like the the woman who you just played us where they didn't want to talk because they worried about what would happen on the next door app or they worried what their neighbors would say. Uh, so sometimes it's like distrust of media. Sometimes it's fear of being criticized for all the stuff Trump does they don't want to talk about. It, it's the cancel culture he's talking about. <laughs> like people are, are are sort of sometimes reluctant to go on the record because, oh, my neighbor's going to hear that. And then they're going to think, you know, differently of me because of what I said or like unfriend me or something like that. Yeah. And I think people know, even if they support the president, that a lot of people don't support him and that he says things that can be divisive. So it's people are wary of sometimes wading into that space. Yeah. And the question is whether you see that as cancel culture or just getting criticized for your beliefs. Well, so one of the things, though, I find interesting, I found interesting about what she said. And, and now this is probably going to be what Amy is talking about. Like, I think when when both sides have been talking about one another, they do use like sort of language that can be somewhat insulting or incendiary like she's calling them crazy and and i've heard you know democrats talk about republicans as being crazy and i think that doesn't help sort of the the political discourse in general Mm. caitlin what you were just speaking to was yeah a perfect example of this rise of negative partisanship where people just really dislike the other party more and more and yeah i heard from lots of moderates as well who just say okay i wish we could turn down the temperature of this conversation. And that gets back to our conversation earlier. It makes me wonder, what will they see as the path back to what they see as normal? In other words, do they think it's President Trump bringing law and order and and, uh, doing whatever he's saying he's going to do to calm things down in the cities? Or do they see it as Joe Biden with his unifier message? And I think it's worth noting that there's plenty of solid Republicans and Democrats that also really want to turn the temperature down and they may not be really far uh, on that spectrum, far right, far left. Um, maybe they're not moderate exactly, but they're in that camp of people that it's like, can we get back to more normalcy? Well, whoever figures that one I'm out. I'm all for that. <laughs> <laughs> 
an excerpt of Purplish. You can hear the full episode out today at CPR.org or wherever you get your podcasts. After the break, Aurora celebrates its artists, many of whom came here from abroad. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Colorado Public Radio is that great combination of breaking news coverage and thoughtful analysis. You get multiple viewpoints, and it's much more balanced. I feel it's very unbiased. It's a different kind of news service. Honest and objective. A humane public conversation about important issues. Especially with all the misinformation going around. You want to be informed. Trust the facts. Trust CPR News. A new arts festival showcasing Aurora's diversity kicks off this weekend. There will be a virtual performance by Yo-Yo Ma and a lot of in-person stuff, too, including plays written by refugee youth and women. The organizer of the New American Arts Festival is actress, dancer, and choreographer Dipali Lindblom. And Dipali, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Ryan. Nice Uh, to see you again. Nice to see you as well. Uh, This festival is an extension of the work you've been doing for years with your organization, Roshni, which I think means light. Um, It helps refugees and marginalized communities tell their stories. Why did this seem like the year to take it to the next level and have a festival? Actually, I'll go back a little bit a decade ago when I had just moved to Canada and I was working with the Tibetan community. And um, this man, gentleman who was in his 80s, he came to me and then he he said to me that, thank you for telling our story because now my great-grandchild will learn the truth. So when I came to America and found myself once again in a place where diversity thrives, which is Aurora, I found who writes the history, who's telling the stories. It's always the winners. What about the people? And so the the idea of the festival came because we wanted to create a platform where real stories told by real people can be um, shared. Um, So the festival has three aspects. The first is called the awakening, which is today. It's, um, again, going back to the history. Who's written the history? And um, and the awakening is kind of understanding that all the while that what we've learned and heard may not be completely true. Mm-hmm. So it's um, it's it's actually a Colorado native who now lives in Portland, and so she's taking um, she's she's written this play and it's called Growing Up Great. Um, and in terms of that, um, it's about uh, what the pandemic and the Black Lives Matter movement has. Uh, you know, shown her. The second day... And, and I'll just say that, that that is such an important message right now, I think especially for Aurora. It is. It is very, very true. And the second day is focused on the stories about people who, who are Coloradans, but they were born in different countries. This girl from Zimbabwe, uh, the, the farm boy from Zimbabwe, or this girl from Guatemala, or the parents of this Vietnamese actor director who was rescued by a naval ship, um, an Irish woman. So these stories are of the real Coloradans who live here, who are the beacons of light in their own community. And in their own way, they are trying to connect the world through going back to their own countries. Let's spend a little time on on maybe one of those plays. Um, Were they difficult to to write? Have they been... Uh, talk talk about the process of, of bringing them to reality. It, it is it is difficult because 
even me, who's who, who I'm a seasoned actor and dancer, I found a hard time finding my place in Colorado as a as an artist of color. So imagine people who have just been coming to America as refugees or even immigrant and and finding their 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 place here, um, finding a voice. So between the three, four jobs they're doing, it's very hard mm. to find time and the motivation to be a part of our mainstream society. So as an artist, I felt that I need to create a platform to give, to show, to help these people speak up. So we're not telling their stories. We want them to tell their own stories. And and that's what I felt when I was a part of Black Elk Speaks the play that happened in Aurora Fox, the community, the Lakota Sioux community came together to tell their own story. And it was not a story that that was of accusation. It was a story of what happened and where do we go from here. Let's move on to that that, that (laughs) third and final part of this. It's so beautifully thought out, Dupali. So the third day is being inclusive. The third day is dedicated to the stories written by our refugee youth and our women who born in different country. And and just to bring back to the first day, how cool it is to share the stage. The Aurora mayor will be sharing stage with these refugee women who were born in another country in very dire conditions that they will come together. So the whole thing is that's what Aurora is about being inclusive. And I'm not talking about just Aurora. I'm talking about the new America. That's why I call it a new American festival where we give voices to everyone. It doesn't matter which minority community do you you belong to. Why don't we dive deeper into one of the refugee stories? Okay, so um, it's again about friendship. In everything boils down to being accepted. So the youth have come up with this story about what does it take to be seen and heard. And of course, it's a superpower. <laughs> so um, so that's the story about um, both of them um, is about power. It's about uh, sci-fi. It's about finding you know help from, from outside, but also inside and creating friendships. Um, as for the refugee women, uh, we came up with a uh, with the story of the Giving Tree, actually, we adapted that uh, book. Oh, the, the, like the the Shel Silverstein. Exactly. Oh, the, I remember yeah. that. I loved that book when I was I a kid. I know, and that's the story of every third world country mother that she gives, she gives, and she gives, and all she wants is to be loved back for who she is. And so that's the story that the women identified with and we we are we doing that in, through dance and storytelling. A reinvented giving tree. <laughs> yes. That's so cool. We're talking about the new American Arts Festival which is underway in Aurora and my guest is the organizer, actress, dancer, choreographer. I'm sure there are other hats that you have worn as part of this, uh, Dupali Lindblom. And, and I, I do want to talk about this moment in Aurora. I mean, I, I think that the pandemic has certainly um, had an uneven effect in communities of color. And uh, no doubt we, we should talk about Elijah McClain and the protests that have happened around around his death. Um Will that be on your mind this weekend? Um, actually, well, right now we are talking more about uh, 
what's next? Where do we go from here? Mm. The pandemic definitely has made not just the people from Aurora, but all over the world to just take a moment and to discard what's not important and to embrace what is important. It's about we cannot undo what's happened, but what we need to speak the truth. We need to let the people know the truth. And the truth can be said in many ways. And as artists, we can simply make it entertaining entertaining, and at the same time talk about it in different ways. So we do have, this festival is not just dance and music. It's also about storytelling. I think that's the biggest part of that. And you do that even through food. Yes, we do. <laughs> we do. Oh, gosh, yes. We are so proud of our five uh, participating uh, restaurants. Most of them are women entrepreneurs. So so they are from Sudan, Nepal, Bhutan, or um, uh, Ethiopia. We have Syrian, and we have uh, Burma, of course. And come and eat their food. I have to say, I've never had Sudanese food. Yes, and it's really cool. Um, and we are, of course, they're giving a discount of $1 for every $6. So this well, weekend. You go. What do you imagine from here, Dipali? Um, how, how does your work continue? Um, we hope that the New American Arts Festival will grow and we will hopefully even have a week-long festival where artists of all kinds of artists will come together to share, to learn, and not just come perform and go, but really connect with each other, connect with the community. And Ryan, I just want to also correct you. The artists who are coming performing are not just from Aurora. They're Mm. coming from all over Colorado. So we are so proud to have people come from Boulder, Colorado Springs, uh, Fort Collins, everywhere. So, and uh, I guess maintaining physical distance. At this <laughs> yes, point. yes, yeah. yes. So it's it's much condensed from the from the original what we had planned in May. Ten venues, hundred artists. Now we have thirty artists, only two venues at a time, and and very very uh, following the guidelines, uh, COVID guidelines of the city. Thanks for your passion and for your time. I appreciate it. Dipali Lindblom is the founder of the New American Arts Festival this weekend in Aurora. Thanks so much for being a part of Colorado Matters today. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News. Mm-hmm.